It's all right. Just go ahead. Today's text is Matthew 5, 2 through 16. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Uh, Go ahead and be seated. I'll give you time. (laughs) You guys need to lighten up. So we're going to continue our sermon series. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. I'll try not to cough through the whole thing. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, and the, the, what we're wanting to understand from this um, is what it is that King Jesus is saying to his people. So I'll just remind you briefly, last week we looked at how uh, the king, who is Jesus, opens up his message by displaying God's heart to bless his people. Um, and we talked about how that is a significant difference from how we typically view God and why in the midst of sin and struggle that we can immediately run and turn to God and not have to try and atone for our own sins or make up for it or allow enough time to pass before His anger will be satisfied so that we can then approach Him. Because in Christ, His anger has been satisfied. And God's heart is to bless His people. And not only should that change how we view God, but it should change how we view ourselves. And remember in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, talking about Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2 tells us, And he opened his mouth and taught them. So the entire context of the Sermon on the Mount, which will be the the context for our sermon series as well, is God talking to his people. Now, we know, and you see this all the time in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, that when Jesus did most of his teaching, it was directly to his disciples, and then there there happened to be other people listening on. And this is what is happening here as Jesus sits down, um, because we see in in chapter 4 that there was crowds, great crowds following Jesus, and we see that in verse 1 as well. And so last week, we talked about how um, God's heart is to bless And this morning, we're going to follow that up with the king's message that it is one of distinction. Distinction. I'm going to define that for us here in just a moment. 
But I think that Jesus follows up. If you remember last week also, I kind of uh, set up this, the Beatitudes as they're commonly known, verses 2 through um, 12, by letting you know that's almost like uh, the introduction to Jesus' sermon. Because although we're looking at this over many weeks, this was one long sitting, right, that Jesus was sitting with his disciples. And so we're just breaking it up because I don't think you guys want one long sitting's worth. (coughs) Excuse me. But he follows up, or if you will, really, if we look at at these verses, uh, verses 13 through 16, uh, in the context, really what we're going to see is Jesus isn't changing subjects, but these three verses are much more of a summary of the Beatitudes. Jesus hasn't changed ideas yet. He's just summarizing the ideas he laid before them by calling them to be blessed, by, by loving and caring for others so that they would be blessed by God. But as we look at this message of distinction this morning, as I always do, I want to point out the common lie that we believe. And remember, we're not talking about the lie the world believes, right? We're talking about the lie that that, that God's people believe, that the church believes. And that is simply this, that how I live does not matter to the king. See, we have this conception and and, and we have this this, um, appreciation for heaven and eternity but sadly, that's where our appreciation for God and what He has done in our lives and what he, what he wants to do in our lives, that's where that ends. And we don't realize that it actually does matter how we live as God's people or as we're looking at the context of kingdom, that it does matter how we live as citizens under the king's rule. You see, rather than stirring one another up in love and good works, we often look around at others and do just a little bit more than them to feel good about ourselves. This is the church. This is God's church. These are God's people, His citizens. Those are us who claim to believe and acknowledge and understand the depths of what Christ has done. How a king would lay down his life for his people rather than the king calling for his people to lay down their life for him. And yet we often fall into this um, lie that it doesn't matter how I live. I can do this and get away with it because I'm going to heaven. But the truth this morning is that the king's message lays out a distinct way to live that is different from other kingdoms. You see, to be, in, to, to be a faithful citizen of God's kingdom, then we are to live in a way that is in concurrence or is, it, it makes sense. Does that make sense? Like we don't look at it and say, how often do you think, man, I thought they were a Christian, right? But we want to live in a way that, that, that easily signifies that we are a part of God's kingdom. Now, let me give you the, the devin, definition of the word distinction. It has, it has two definitions, two working definitions, and that is this. The word distinction means either a difference or contrast between similar things or people, okay? A difference or contrast between similar things or people, or it means an excellence that sets someone or something apart, okay? Excellence that sets someone or something apart. And I would um, lay before you this morning that our definition as we look at uh, Jesus' message of distinction is that we're going to incorporate both of those. I think that both of those are true when we look at how King Jesus has called or delivered a message for us to live uh, distinct lives. 
And so let me define, let me put together a, a definition of distinction that I'm, I, I will have in mind this morning as I use it. And that is this. It is a life that is lived differently from the world because God's excellence has set us apart. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a message of distinction. It is a life that is lived differently from the world because God's excellence has set us apart. Jesus gathers his disciples up on the hill and they sit down and he begins to teach his disciples. He had already called them to be his own. He had already walked the the, the shores and through the town and he had called these men from their current life. And it's worth noting for just a quick second that these men didn't have to do anything in order to follow Christ other than follow him. There was no list given to them and telling them to go take care of these things and then you can follow me. It was simply they were called and they followed. And that is the same for us today. So because God has called us in Romans, in Romans, the Apostle Paul says, those that God has called, he is also justified. We are God's people. If we have been called by God and we have responded to that call in faith, then we are God's people. And so this message of distinction is written this morning. Yes, it was for his original disciples on that hillside, but it's also for you and I this morning. We are to live lives that are distinct. Now, in our text today, Jesus, the king, he uses two illustrations to teach us about his message of distinction. Okay? And I would just pause for a moment, and and I want to point out a key word in what I just said there. I said the word teach. It's the same word that Jesus uses in verse 2. He says, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Let me simply ask a question. When you come to God, and even as we're here this morning, is your approach to God and your attitude towards God teach me, or is it show me? How do you approach the king? Teach me so that I will believe. Teach me so that I will understand. Or show me, otherwise I won't believe. There is a world of difference. Nobody in his right mind walks into a king and says, show me why you are the king and why I should worship you. Kings believe in the death penalty. Right? Like that would be the end. And chances are, you would have been made an example for all to see. But our approach to Christ, our approach to God, should be teach me so that I can believe. So the two illustrations that Jesus uses this morning is that of salt and that of light. If you've been in the church at any, for any length of time, this probably is not a foreign passage to you. Um, and so what I want to do is talk a little bit here about the salt and the light and what I think uh, what most people believe God means and Christ means when he's talking about salt and light. But then I also want to work through some practicalities of what does it actually look like for us to live distinct lives. What does it look like if we were to believe that our lives should be lived differently from the world because God's excellence has set us apart? And remember, we have to remember that whole God's excellence has set us apart because that is how we were saved. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. 
God's care and affection for us was cast down on us um, according to nothing that we have done. So why would it be, Christian, that the rest of your life should be lived any differently? You see, Christianity is a religion that says we live from what God has done for us. We don't live for it. We don't try to obtain it. We don't try to become citizens, but God has made us citizens. Therefore, let us live as loyal and faithful citizens. So Jesus uses salt. Here in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so the idea of salt here, I believe that he's getting at, is the idea of preservation. Salt is a preservative. Salt preserves. Remember, this context, um, they didn't have refrigerators and freezers, right? Salt wasn't just, what, although it was used to help accentuate the taste of food, that wasn't its main purpose in their day. Its main purpose was a preservative so that their food would last. They didn't have the means and technology that we have today to cause our food to last longer. For us, all we know salt is, is, oh, let's make it taste good. And if that's how we understand this, and we get to the parts where Jesus says, um, blessed are, or how do we understand, if we think that salt is just for our taste so that things will be uh, easier to go down easier, then how do we reconcile, blessed are you who are persecuted? Because we look at that and we cling to, wait, this is supposed to taste good. Persecution doesn't taste good, so we reject the persecution. But I don't think Christ was talking about the flavor of salt. He's talking about the preservative, the way that it preserves. Now, when he talks about the light here uh, in verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In verse 15, he makes it a little bit more specific to him. And he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in all the house. See, in these days, in a typical Jewish household, what would happen is obviously they didn't have refrigerators. They also didn't have electricity. Um, But they would have a small lamp that would be set up on a, 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 uh, a shelf And that small lamp would give light to the whole house. And so Jesus is talking to them. He's teaching them in ways that are very common to them, ways that they understand, ways that they understand when Jesus says, nor do you put a lamp and put it under a basket, but you put it on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. They're like, oh yeah, I get that. I understand what he's talking about. So the idea of light is the idea of proclamation. So I think in this, I think the way that Christ is, sums up his um, message of blessing is by saying that a distinct life is one of preservation and proclamation. You see, most would think that the salt and light do not have anything to do with each other. I think when we look at this, we tend to think, okay, salt and light, they have nothing to do with one another. But I believe and would propose to you this morning that Jesus is actually painting us one picture not two. Jesus is painting us a picture of this life of distinction. You see, as salt, listen, as salt, Christians should care about preserving the morality of a society and about taking the necessary steps to stop destructive behaviors. We should preserve. That's what salt does. 
We shouldn't just go with society and culture and say whatever is good, there's no, there's no uh, definitive truth, but whatever is true for you and just live by it. That's not how we should live our lives. The idea of light is also that as we are being active in our society and in our communities, we should never hide why we're working to do these things. You see, a lot of people can do the work of salt and they keep the light shut off. A lot of people can work for better policies and better neighborhoods and better communities. But there's no eternal hope in it because the light is off. And sadly, just the same, a lot of people can proclaim the good news and they've thrown the salt out. They don't, they're, they're wor- I mean, this is what James, the book of James addresses is people, how you proclaim one thing with your mouth, but you don't do anything in your life to live a life that wants people to believe what you're saying. And so in this picture, or in this, these illustrations of salt and light, the picture, I believe, that the king is drawing for his citizens is this. Is that citizens in Jesus' kingdom follow a king that is distinct from other kings. And therefore, they should live in a way that is distinct from other kingdoms. You see, Jesus didn't come to the world the way that worldly kings come. He didn't come and set up residence and power. He didn't come and force takeovers of people. He came to serve. He came to love the outcasts of society. He came to care about those who, uh, by other means, have no one that cares about them. And by calling us to be the salt and the light of the world, Jesus is calling us to work in our communities, to love our communities so that destructive behavior would be stopped but also to proclaim his goodness and why we have a hope. And, let's be honest, we need to proclaim God's goodness because we know that simply changing behaviors does not have lasting effects. The truth changes the heart and the behaviors will follow. But that doesn't mean that we don't try and work towards... um, healing brokenness in our society, whether or not they are saved. We should still work, do the hard work of working for restoration, of loving, of trying to mend what is broken. Think about Jesus and the lepers. He healed the lepers and they walked away from him. Most of them walked away and lived their lives just like they had done before Christ healed them. God knew that they would reject the message, but yet he still touched them. He still revealed himself to them. Now, this idea of kingdoms is somewhat foreign to us, and many people in opposition will just say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't live for anybody but myself. But I think that Scripture paints an entirely different picture for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, And you were dead in trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, the Apostle Paul knew that everybody was in... We always like to put people in two categories, right? Like, that's just what people do. Um, 
But here's what Paul does. The truth is that you are living in one of two categories. And in Colossians, Paul writes, you're either in the category in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The Apostle John writes about these two contradicting kingdoms. One he calls the Father's kingdom, one he calls the world's kingdom. It's the same idea of light and darkness. In Matthew chapter 4, right before Jesus begins his sermon, he says, again, the devil took him. This is when Jesus was tempted. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. You see, Satan cannot give what is not his. Satan is the king of the world. And he tempted Christ in the flesh to bow down and worship him. And then Satan would deliver to Christ the kingdoms of the world. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What was the rock that Christ was going to build his church on? It wasn't Peter himself. It was the confession that Jesus was the Son of God, the one that God sent to save. We see this in the Old Testament as well. This isn't just a New Testament concept, but in the Old Testament, we see it played out differently. Rather than seeing the emphasis being on spiritual kingdoms, we see them on earthly kingdoms. And we see how there are all kinds of worldly kings and kingdoms. There's the, the Persians, and there's a lot of names I can't say, and the Philistines are a few, right? But you see this all through the Old Testament, and it's a picture of these two kingdoms. Think about the Egyptians when they conquered the Israelites and put them into slavery, it was the idea of darkness versus light. And in the New Testament, the focus shifts to the spiritual powers and kingdoms. Some of you are old enough to remember. <laughs> oh, I thought I heard laughs. Oh. Some of you, way back in 1979, or as my kids say, way back in the 80s. Some of the 80s weren't that long ago. Um, Bob Dylan's song, you got to serve somebody. He says, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The truth is that we all live in a kingdom. We are all dedicated to a king. And here's the sad part is most people are convinced and deceived that the kingdom is them, the king is themselves, that they're living for themselves, that everything that they do isn't because they're enslaved to the devil, but it's because they are the king and they're running their own lives. But they've been fooled. They've been fooled. They're serving the king, the prince of darkness. But our king, the king of the Christians, brings a message of distinction. It's a message of salt and light. We could say it this way. The king has sent us into the world to live a life that clearly and undeniably represents his kingship. Not just his kingdom, but his kingship. 
You see, the salt and the light, the, pres- the preserving and the proclamation isn't just done because we're a people. Our hope isn't, listen, our, we, talk, we prayed this as leaders this morning, our hope isn't in the church. Our hope isn't in the people of God. But our hope is in the King of God. Our hope is in the Savior of God, right? And so when we are called to be salt and light, and we talked about it last week with all the Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. That was Christ. In his message of blessing, he lays out a path of life and and things to do because he has done them for you. He has done them for his disciples. Or he's in the process for his disciples, but he has concretely done them for us. So we're to live in a way that properly represents God's kingship, Christ's kingship. Now, there are many practical ways that we can talk about how to bring about obedience to the king's message that his citizens should live different from the world because God's excellence has set them apart. But I think that that message, this message of distinction is best understood through the message of blessing. So what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of the time that I have this morning actually going back to the Beatitudes and talking about how that is exactly what, that's what drove Jesus into these, these three verses of the salt and the light. And how he had actually already laid out for them how to be salt and light. And then he summarized his points by calling them to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So if you look at verse 3 in chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. So Christ says, to be salt and light in my kingdom means to be poor in spirit. Right? That's, what, that's, that's how we're different. We recognize we can't save ourselves. We recognize the good is not deep down in us. We keep digging for it. We recognize that outside of God's sovereign hand in our hearts and our lives, we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But the world's message is blessed are those who exalt themselves. See, remember, our message of distinction has to do with comparing and contrasting two things, right? So everything that God says, blessed are you when you do this, we could also say, cursed are you when you do the opposite. Cursed are we when we exalt ourselves over Christ the King. Cursed are we when we wrestle with God's sovereignty and the things that He is doing in our lives. It doesn't mean we're rejected. It just means that the hand of blessing is withheld. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God's kingdom, people in God's kingdom. Listen, we are free to acknowledge and accept and mourn over our sins. But what does the world say? The world either excuses sin, it justifies sin, or it tries to rename sin and take away the idea of sin. It denies sin. But now listen, let's remember that God is, Jesus is sitting up on the mountains with his own disciples. Which means his disciples are not far from self-exaltation. In fact, if you remember, there's an argument that two of them have. 
Jesus, when your kingdom comes, who will sit at your right hand? Who will sit at your left hand? Right? They were trying to bring themselves up above the other disciples. And God's response was, that's not for you to know, but the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Christian, as citizens in Christ's kingdom, we have to be careful and we have to be on guard against excusing or justifying our sins. As parents, it is easy for us to say that I wasn't wrong because you were wrong first to our kids. It is easy to justify our yelling or our anger or our sinful response because of what they did. But blessed are those who mourn over their sin. May we be parents who mourn over our sin in front of our children so that it would be all that they know. You see, we can't save our kids, but we can do this. This is the power of being parents, and, and mothers especially today on Mother's Day. The power of being a, a, a parent is that you can make it as easy as possible for your kids to believe. Right? You can't save them. And, and you making it easy for them to believe doesn't necessarily mean that they will believe. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is as parents, we have the most prestigious position in our children's lives to make it easy for them to believe. Mourn over your sin. In verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. That means power under control. Right? For they shall inherit the earth. What does the world say? The world says if you want to inherit the power, if you want to inherit the world, you've got to go get it. It's self-serving power. It's you have to serve me and do what I want so that I can be lifted up. But this isn't far from our hearts either. The way we treat our spouses. Oftentimes when we sin against them, it's this desire for self-serving power. But God's hand, listen, it doesn't mean that we don't have power. There's two ways to look at that. One, we have the greatest power in us because God's Spirit lives in us. But cursed is he who uses God's power for his own platform, for his own means, for his own good. Blessed are those that use their power to serve others. That's this message of distinction. The world says power so that you'll serve me. Christ's kingdom says use your power to serve others. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Jesus lays out this idea of, of, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we talked last week about how that paints a picture for us of when, our, when we are thirsty, like I am right now. Um, this wasn't planned. We will do what it takes to satisfy that thirst, right? When we are thirsty or we are hungry, we will do what it takes to satisfy that felt need and desire. And Jesus says that greater is satisfying the thirst for righteousness than is satisfying the thirst for food or water. But the world says, hunger and thirst for self-interest. Hunger and thirst for what's best for you because you know what? No one else is going to look out for number one, so you have to. 
That's life according to the world. Verse 7, blessed are the, those who show mercy, for they will receive mercy. Showing mercy means um, not giving out what is due because of people's sin. You might have every right to give somebody the cold shoulder or to tell them off or to gossip about them, but you don't. You withhold that because God has withheld what you deserve. But what does the world say? The world says revenge. Revenge on the greatest platform. Not only are we to hurt them as to the same degree they hurt us, but we have a little bit of, you know, a little bit of wiggle room there to hurt them more. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The world says, there's no limits in life. If it feels good, do it. I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody knows. But God says, blessed are the pure. Pure means not mixed with any other matter. If you want to see God, you cannot live in His kingdom with no limits. Guys, listen. We haven't spent a lot of time in the last four years talking about the do's and don'ts. We spent a lot of time talking about God's grace. A lot of it. That's what we'll die on. We've proclaimed that from the beginning. But as Christians, as citizens in God's kingdom, we have to have limits on our lives. Our sexual lives should not look like the world's. Our viewing habits should not look like the world's. What we listen to, what we take in, what we give our lives to should be pure. It should not look like the world's. There should be limits. Not because those limits save us and not because those limits cause us to stay in God's um, kingdom, but because God has already granted us everything that we ever need for life and happiness. And God's plan and God's design in life is a design of limits. Purity. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. No one was more of a peacemaker than Christ. No one could have made peace between us and God except for Christ. But listen, the world says, that's none of my business. I'm not getting involved. Individualism. Blessed are the peacemakers that you go and you make peace. That means you bring peace where there wasn't presently peace. That's what that means. That means you get dirty, you get hurt, It's agonizing to go into situations where you have to make peace. But the world says, that's that's, that's too much. That's their business. I don't want to judge them. I don't want to get involved. Let them just keep going down the path they're down. They'll get it figured out. God will fix it. Church, that's what we say. God will fix it. In that moment, we deny the power of the kingdom because God has designed His church to be His instruments of reconciliation and peacemaking. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does the world say? The world says you've got to be politically correct. Politically correct. Don't say anything to offend. Don't tell people they're sinners. Right? Don't, people, don't tell people who are having sex outside of marriage that it's sinful. Don't tell people 
who are, have same-sex attractions that it's sinful, right? Don't tell people that the way they spend their time and their money is sinful because it's offensive. It's what the world says. But Christ's kingdom says that we should live in a distinct way from that. We should live in a way that will willingly walk into persecution so that God's glory would be seen. For righteousness' sake, for doing what is right. And now I hope with that you can kind of see between all of these things and the Beatitudes that that Christ talks about, the message of blessing. We can see how we're to walk as salt and light in this earth. We can see how we're supposed to do good deeds. One of the the main roles of the church is to stir one another up in faith and good deeds of doing good. But in our good deeds, we cannot fail to proclaim. We're to be the salt and the light, not just one or the other. Now, let me wrap this up here with having you look at verse 16. Verse 16 of our text this morning says, In the same way, let your (laughs) light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, your life tells a story. Do you realize that? Not only did Jesus paint a picture with these two illustrations for us, but our lives paint pictures for everyone else. And so what story is your life telling? What story is your life telling? Is your life telling a story of salt? You realize one of the, one of the factors of salt, when we do talk about consuming salt, it makes you thirsty. It makes you thirsty. One of the factors of light is that light draws in lost people. And I'm reminded of Christ's words. He who drinks of me will never thirst again. I am the light of the world. And so our lives should leave people wanting God. The salt of our life should make them thirsty that only Christ can satisfy the thirst. And our lives should draw lost people to the light. John MacArthur says this about this uh, verse. He says, A godly life gives convincing testimony that the saving power of God, of the saving power of God, and that brings God glory. You see, this life of blessing, this message of blessing, this message of distinction should give testimony to the saving power of God. The king's message lays out a distinct way to live that is different from other kingdoms. And so this morning, our response should simply be to repent from not believing. Repent from not living lives that are in accordance with God's kingdom and that are in accordance with our own kingdoms or the the world's kingdom. And see, the idea of repenting, it's, it's not just about letting go. It's much more about replacing or beholding. 
And so may we let go of the world and may we embrace Christ as the King. If you stand with me, we'll pray. God, I thank you that, um, God, that you call us to a life that is only possible through the power of your Spirit. God, it is great, Lord. We want to hear the good news that, that, you, that you bring a message of blessing to your people, that your heart is to bless your people, God. We love that. We embrace that. We raise our hands and say, choose me, bless me. But God, I pray that we would see that life of blessing is also one of distinction. It is one that is lived differently from the world because the excellencies of God has set us apart. God, this is the essence of holiness, of what it is to be a holy people. So I pray this morning, God, our, 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 our hearts, God, are so prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. And so I pray, God, that you would call us back to yourselves, to yourself. I pray, God, that you would help us, God, to um, release, God, and let go of the worldly things that we cling so closely to. God, let us let go of self-exaltation. God, let us let go of justifying our sins. God, let us let go of self-serving power and revenge and life that has no limits. God, may we let go of individualism and being politically correct as not to offend. And may we embrace Christ, who is perfectly poor in spirit, who mourned over the sin of the world, who used his power to serve others, who sought not his own interests, but righteousness be done to others who acted in the greatest act of mercy, who was completely pure and worked to make peace, to bring peace where there was war, and who ultimately was persecuted for your name's sake. God, may we see the value in Christ. May our affections be cast upon Christ and not upon ourselves and the kingdom of this world. 